0: While she seems to acknowledge God in the death of her son, she cannot shake off the thought that the prophet's presence was responsible for it. She attributes her loss to Elijah, as though he had been commissioned to go to her for the purpose of inflicting punishment upon her for her sin. As he had been sent to Ahab to denounce the drought upon Israel for their sin, so now she was afraid of his presence, alarmed at the very sight of him. Alas, how ready we are to mistake the grounds of our afflictions and ascribe them to false causes. And he said unto her, Give me thy son. Verse 19. In the opening paragraph of our last chapter, we pointed out how the second half of First Kings 17 presents to us a picture of the domestic life of Elijah, his deportment in the widow's home at Zarephath. First he evidenced his contentment with the humble fare, expressing no dissatisfaction with the unvarying menu day after day. And here we behold how he conducted himself under great provocation. The petulant outburst of this agitated woman was a cruel one to make unto the very man who had brought deliverance to her house. Her art thou come to call my sin to remembrance, and to slay my son, was uncalled for and unjust and might well have prompted a bitter reply. It had undoubtedly done so had not the subduing grace of God been working with him, for Elijah was naturally of a warm temper. The wrong construction which the widow placed upon Elijah's presence in her home was enough to shake any person. Blessed is it to observe that there was no angry reply made to her inconsiderate judgment, but instead a soft answer to turn away her wrath. If one speaks to us unadvisedly with his lips, that is no reason why we should descend to his level. The prophet took no notice of her passionate inquiry and thereby evidenced that he was a follower of him who is meek and lowly in heart, of whom we read, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. 1 Peter 2.23 Elijah saw that she was in extreme distress and that she spoke as one in great anguish of spirit. And therefore, taking no notice of her words, he calmly said to her, Give me thy son, leading her at the same time to expect the restoration of her child through his intercession. J. Simpson It may be thought that the last words cited above are entirely speculative. Personally, we believe that they are fully warranted by Scripture. In Hebrews 11.35 we read, Women receive their dead raised to life again it will be remembered that this statement is found in the great faith chapter, where the Spirit has set forth some of the wondrous achievements and exploits of those who trust the living God. One individual case after another is mentioned, and then there is a grouping together and generalizing. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, women receive their dead raised to life again. There can be no room for doubt that the reference here is to the case now before us, and the companion one in that of the Shumanites. 2 Kings 4.17-37 Here then is where the New Testament again throws its light upon the earlier scriptures, enabling us to obtain a more complete conception of that which we are now considering. The widow of Zarephath, though a Gentile, was the daughter of Sarah, to whom had been committed the faith of God's elect. Such a faith is a supernatural one, its author and object being supernatural. When this faith was first born within her, we are not told. Very likely while Elijah was sojourning in her home, for faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10:17), The supernatural character of her faith was evidenced by its supernatural fruits, for it was in response to her faith, as well as to Elijah's intercession, that her child was restored to her. What is the more remarkable is that, so far as the word informs us, there had been no previous case of the dead being brought back again to life. Nevertheless, he who had caused a handful of meal to waste not, and a little oil in a cruise to fail not, while it sustained three people for many days, surely he could also quicken the dead. Thus does faith reason. Nothing is impossible to the Almighty. It may be objected that there is no hint in the historical narrative of the widow's faith as to the restoring of her son to life, but rather a hint to the contrary. True, yet this in no wise makes against what has been pointed out above. Nothing is said in Genesis about Sarah's faith to conceive seed, but instead her skepticism is mentioned. What is there in Exodus to suggest that the parents of Moses were exercising faith in God when they placed their son in the ark of bulrushes? Yet see Hebrews 11.23. One would be hard put to find anything in the book of Judges which suggests that Samson was a man of faith, yet it is clear from Hebrews 11.32 that he was. But if nothing is said in the Old Testament of her faith, we may also note that the unkind words of the widow to Elijah are not recorded in the New Testament any more than the unbelief of Sarah or the impatience of Job, because they are blotted out by the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 10 Women Received Their Dead Raised to Life Again We are now to consider one of the most remarkable incidents recorded in the Old Testament, namely, the restoring to life of the widow's son at Zarephath. It is an incident staggering to unbelief. Yet he who has any experimental acquaintance with the Lord finds no difficulty therein. When Paul was making his defense before Agrippa, the apostle asked him, Why should it be thought a thing incredible? Not simply that a deceased person should be restored to life, that God should raise the dead. Acts six eight. Ah, there is where the believer throws all the emphasis upon the absolute sufficiency of the one with whom he has to do. Bring into the scene the living God, and no matter how drastic and desperate be the situation, all difficulties at once disappear, for nothing is impossible to him. He who first implanted life, he who now holdeth our souls in life, Psalm six nine can revivify the dead. The modern infidel, like the Sadducees of old, may scoff at the divinely revealed truth of resurrection, but not so the Christian. And why? Because he has experienced in his own soul the quickening power of God. He has been brought from death unto life spiritually. Even though Satan should inject vile doubts into his mind and for a while shake his confidence in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Yet he will soon recover his poise. He knows the blessedness of that grand verity. And when grace has again delivered him from the power of darkness, he will joyfully exclaim with the apostle, Christ liveth in me. Moreover, when he was born again, a supernatural principle was planted within his heart, the principle of faith. And that principle causes him to receive the holy scriptures with full assurance that they are indeed the word of him that cannot lie and therefore does he believe all that the prophets have spoken. Here is the reason why that which staggers and stumbles the wise of this world is plain and simple to the Christian. The preservation of Noah and his family in the ark, Israel's passing through the Red Sea dry shod, the survival of Jonah in the whale's belly, present no difficulty to him at all. He knows that the word of God is inerrant, for the truth thereof has been verified in his own experience. Having proved for himself that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation, he has no reason to doubt anything recorded in holy writ concerning the wonders of his might in the material realm. The believer is fully assured that nothing is too hard for the maker of heaven and earth. It is not that he is an intellectual simpleton, credulously accepting what is altogether contrary to reason, But that, in the Christian, reason is restored to its normal functioning, predicate of God who is almighty, and the supernatural working of his hand necessarily follows. The entire subject of miracles is hereby reduced to its simplest factor. A great deal of learned jargon has been written on this theme, the laws of nature, their suspension, God's acting contrary thereto, and the precise nature of a miracle. Personally, we would define a miracle as something which none but God himself can perform. In so doing, we are not underestimating the powers possessed by Satan or overlooking such passages as Revelation 16.14 and 19.20. It is sufficient for the writer that Holy Writ affirms the Lord to be He who alone doeth great wonders. Psalm 136.4 As for the great signs and wonders shown by false Christs and false prophets, their nature and design is to deceive, Matthew 24:24. for they are lying wonders, Second Thessalonians 2, 9, just as their predictions are false ones. Here we rest. God alone doeth great wonders, and being God, this is just what faith expects from him. In our last chapter, we were occupied with the sore affliction which came upon the Zarephath widow in the sudden death of her son, and the immediate effect which it had upon her. Stirred to the depths, she turned to Elijah and accused him of being the occasion of her heavy loss. The prophet made no harsh reply to the unkind and unjust charge, but instead quietly said, Give me thy son. Observe that he did not autocratically lay hands upon the corpse, but courteously requested that the body should be turned over to him. We believe that Elijah's design therein was to still her passion and cause her against hope to believe in hope, Romans 4.18, as long before Abraham had done, when he believed God who quickeneth the dead, for it was in part in response to her faith that she received her dead restored to life again, Hebrews 11.35. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his bed, 1 Kings 17.19 This was evidently an upper room reserved for the prophet's personal use, as Elisha had his in another place, 2 Kings 4.10. Thither he now retired for privacy, as Peter to the housetop and Christ unto the garden. The prophet himself must have been quite oppressed and disconcerted by the sad event which had overtaken his hostess. Stern as Elijah might be in the discharge of duty, yet he possessed a tender spirit underneath, as such stern men usually do, full of mercy and sensitive to the misery of others. It is quite evident from the sequel, Elijah grieved that one who had been so kind to him should be so heavily afflicted, since he had come to her hospitable abode, and it would add to his distress that she should think he was responsible for her loss. It must not be lost sight of that this dark dispensation occasioned the real testing of Elijah's faith. Jehovah is the God of the widow and the rewarder of those who befriend his people, especially of those who show kindness to his servants. Why then should such evil now come upon the one who was affording him shelter? Had he not come by the Lord's own appointment as a messenger of mercy to her house? True, he had proved himself to be such, But this was forgotten by her under the stress of the present trial, for he is now regarded as the emissary of wrath, an avenger of her sin, the slayer of her only child. Worst of all, would he not feel that the honor of his master was also involved, that the name of the Lord would be scandalized? Might the widow not ask, Is this how God repays those who befriend his servants? Blessed is it to observe how Elijah reacted to this trial. When the widow asked if the death of her son was due to his presence, he indulged in no carnal speculations, making no attempt to solve the deep mystery which now confronted himself as well as her. Instead, he retires to his chamber that he may get alone with God and spread his perplexity before him. This is ever the course we should follow, for not only is the Lord a very present help in trouble, but his word requires that we should seek him first. Matthew 6.33 My soul waiteth thou only upon God applies with double force in times of perplexity and distress. Vain is the help of man. Worthless are carnal conjectures. In the hour of his acutest trial, the Savior himself withdrew from his own disciples and poured out his heart unto the Father in secret. The widow was not allowed to witness the deepest exercises of the prophet's soul before his master. And he cried unto the Lord, verse 20. As yet Elijah apprehended not the meaning of this mystery, but he well understood what to do in his difficulty. He betook himself unto his God and spread his complaint before him. He sought relief with great earnestness and importunity, humbly reasoning with him regarding the death of the child. But note well his reverent language. He did not ask, Why hast thou afflicted this dismal dispensation upon us? But instead, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? Verse 20 The why of it was none of his business. It is not for us to call into question the ways of the Most High, nor to inquire curiously into his secret counsels. Sufficient for us to know that the Lord makes no mistakes, that he has a good and sufficient reason for all he does, and therefore should we meekly submit to his sovereign pleasure. Man's Why Doth He, and Why Hast Thou, is designated a replying against God. Romans 9, verses 19 and 20. In Elijah's address unto God we may note, first, how that he fell back upon the special relation which he sustained to him. O Lord my God, he cried. This was a pleading of his personal interest in God, For these words are always expressive of covenant relationship. To be able to say, O Lord, my God, is worth more than gold or rubies. Second, he traced the calamity back to its original source. Hast thou also brought evil upon the widow? Verse 20. He saw death striking by divine commission. Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? Amos 3.6. What a comfort when we are enabled to realize that no evil can befall God's children, but such as he brings upon them. Third, he pleaded the severity of the affliction. This evil has come upon, not simply the woman, nor even the mother, but the widow, whom thou dost specially suffer. Moreover, she it is with whom I sojourn, my kind benefactor. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord. Verse 21. Was this proof of the prophet's humility? How remarkable that so great a man should spend so much time and thought on that slender form and bring himself into immediate contact with that which ceremonially defiled. Was this act indicative of his own affection for the child to show how deeply he was stirred by his death? Was it a token of the fervency of his appeal unto God, as though he would, if he could, put life into his body from the life and warmth of his own? Does not his doing this three times over so intimate? Was it a sign of what God would do by his power and accomplish by his grace in the bringing of sinners from death unto life, the Holy Spirit overshadowing them and imparting his own life to them? If so, Is there not more than a hint here that those whom he employs as instruments in conversion must themselves become as little children, bringing themselves to the level of those to whom they minister, and not standing on a pedestal as though they were superior beings? Cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. Verse 21. What a proof is this that Elijah was accustomed to expect wondrous blessings from God in response to his supplications, accounting that nothing was too hard for him to do, nothing too great for him to bestow in answer to prayer. Undoubtedly, this petition was prompted by the Holy Spirit, yet it was a marvelous effect of the prophet's faith to anticipate the restoration of the child to life, For there is no record in Scripture that anyone had been raised from the dead before this time. And remember, Christian reader, that this is recorded for our instruction and encouragement. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. At the throne of grace we approach unto a great king, so let us bring large petitions with us. The more faith counts upon the infinite power and sufficiency of the Lord, the more he is honored. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Verse 22. What a proof was this, that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayer. 1 Peter 3.21 What a demonstration of the potency and efficacy of prayer. Ours is a prayer hearing and prayer answering God. To him, therefore, let us have recourse, whatever be our distress. Hopeless as our case may be to all human help, yet nothing is too hard for the Lord. He is able to do far more exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But let us ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. James 1, 6 and 7 This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. 1 John 5.14 Surely we have need, all of us, to cry more earnestly, Lord, teach us to pray. Unless this be one of the effects produced by pondering the incident now before us, our study of the same has availed us little. It is not sufficient for us to cry, Lord, teach us to pray, However, we must also carefully ponder those portions of his word which chronicle cases of prevailing intercession that we may learn the secrets of successful prayer. In this instance, we may note the following points. First, Elijah's retiring to his own private chamber that he might be alone with God. Second, his fervency. He cried unto the Lord. No mere lip service was this. Third, his reliance upon his own personal interest in the Lord, avowing his covenant relation. O Lord my God! Fourth, his encouraging himself in God's attributes. Here, the divine sovereignty and supremacy. Hast thou also brought evil upon the widow? Fifth, his earnestness and importunity, evidenced by his stretching himself upon the child no less than three times. Sixth, his appeal to God's tender mercy, the widow with whom I sojourn, and finally the definiteness of his petition, let this child's soul come into him again. And the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Verse 22. These words are important for clearly establishing the definite distinction which there is between the soul and the body, a distinction as real as that which exists between the house and its inhabitant. Scripture tells us that, in the day of his creation, the Lord God first formed man's body out of the dust of the ground, and second, that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and only then did he become a living soul. Genesis 2.7 The language employed on this occasion affords clear proof that the soul is distinct from the body, that it does not die with the body, that it exists in a separate state after the death of the body and that none but God can restore it to its original habitat. Compare Luke 8.55. Incidentally, we may observe that this request of Elijah's and the Lord's response make it quite clear that the child was actually dead. Relatively speaking, though in a very real sense nevertheless, the age of miracles has ceased, so that we cannot expect to have our dead supernaturally restored to us in this life. Yet the Christian may and ought to look forward with certain assurance to meeting again with those beloved relatives and friends who departed hence in Christ. Their spirits are not dead, nor even sleeping, as some erroneously assert, but have returned to God who gave them, Ecclesiastes 12.7, and are now in a state that is far better, Philippians 1.23, which could not be were they deprived of all conscious communion with their beloved. Being absent from the body, they are present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 And in his presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 16.11 As to their bodies, they await that great day when they shall be fashioned like unto Christ's glorious body. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. Verse 23. What joy must have filled the prophet's heart as he witnessed the miraculous answer to his intercession. What fervent ejaculations of praise must have issued from his lips unto God for this additional manifestation of his goodness in delivering him from his grief. But it was no time for delay. The sorrow and suspense of the poor widow must now be allayed. Elijah therefore promptly took the child downstairs and gave him to his mother. Who can imagine her delight as she saw her child restored to life again? How the prophet's procedure on this occasion reminds us of our Lord's action following upon the miracle of restoring to life the only son of the widow of Nain. For no sooner did he sit up and speak than we are told that the Savior delivered him to his mother. Luke 7.15 And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Verse 24. Very blessed is this. Instead of giving vent to her natural emotions, she appears to have been entirely absorbed with the power of God, which rested upon his servant, which now firmly established her conviction of his divine mission and assurance in the truth which he proclaimed. Full demonstration had been given her that Elijah was indeed a prophet of the Lord, and that his witness was true. It must not be forgotten that he had first presented himself to her as a man of God. Note her words in verse 18. And therefore it was essential that he should establish his claim to that character. And this was done by the restoration of her child to life. Ah, my reader, we avow ourselves to be the children of the living God, but how are we making good our profession? There is only one conclusive way of doing so, and that is by walking in newness of life, evidencing that we are new creatures in Christ. Now, let us observe how that which has been before us supplies yet another feature of Elijah's domestic life. In considering how he conducted himself in the widow's home, we noted first his contentment, murmuring not at the humble fare which was placed before him. Second, his gentleness, in refusing to reply to her unkind words with an angry retort. And now we behold the blessed effect upon his hostess of the miracle wrought in answer to his prayers. Her confession, By this I know thou art a man of God, was a personal testimony to the reality and power of a holy life. Oh to live in the energy of the Holy Spirit so that those who come into contact with us may perceive the power of God working in and through us. Thus did the Lord overrule the widow's grief unto her spiritual good by establishing her faith in the veracity of his word. Chapter 11 Facing Danger To one filled with such zeal for the Lord and love for his people, the prolonged inactivity to which he was forced to submit must have proved a severe trial to Elijah. So energetic and courageous a prophet would naturally be anxious to take advantage of the present distress of his countrymen. He would desire to awaken them to a sense of their grievous sins and urge them to return unto the Lord. Instead, so different are God's ways from ours, he was required to remain in complete seclusion month after month and year after year. Nevertheless, his master had a wise and gracious design in this trying discipline of his servant. Throughout his long stay by the brook Cherith, Elijah proved the faithfulness and sufficiency of the Lord and he gained not a little from his protracted sojourn in Zarephath. As the Apostle reveals both in 2 Corinthians 6.4 and 12.12, the first mark of an approved servant of Christ is the grace of spiritual patience, and this is developed by the trials of faith, James 1.3. The years spent by Elijah at Zarephath were far from being wasted, for during his stay in the widow's home he obtained confirmation of his divine call, by the remarkable seal which was there given to his ministry. Thereby he approved himself to the conscience of his hostess. Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. 17.24 It was highly important that the prophet should have such a testimony to the divine source of his mission before entering upon the more difficult and dangerous part of it which yet lay before him. His own heart was blessedly confirmed, and he was enabled to start afresh upon his public career with the assurance that he was a servant of Jehovah, and that the word of the Lord was indeed in his mouth. Such a seal to his ministry, the quickening of the dead child, and the approving of himself in the conscience of the mother was a grand encouragement for him as he set out to face the great crisis and conflict at Carmel. What a message is there here for any ardent ministers of Christ whom Providence may for a season have laid by from public service? They are so desirous of doing good and promoting the glory of their Master in the salvation of sinners and the building up of his saints that they feel their enforced inactivity to be a severe trial. But let them rest assured that the Lord has some good reason for laying this restraint upon them, and therefore, They should earnestly seek grace that they may not be fretful under it nor take matters into their own hands in seeking to force a way out of it. Ponder the case of Elijah. He uttered no complaints nor did he venture out of the retirement into which God had sent him. He waited patiently for the Lord to direct him to set him at liberty and to enlarge his sphere of usefulness. Meanwhile, by fervent intercession he was made a great blessing unto those in the home and it came to pass after many days 1st Kings 18 1. let us attend to this expression of the blessed spirits it is not after three years as was indeed the case but after many days there is here an important lesson for our hearts if we will heed it we should live a day at a time and count our lives by days man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble he cometh forth like a flower and is cut down Job fourteen one and two, such was the view of life taken by the aged Jacob. For when Pharaoh asked the patriarch, "How old art thou?" he answered, "The days of the years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty years." Genesis forty seven nine. Happy are they whose constant prayer is, "So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom." Psalm ninety twelve. Yet how prone we are to count by years! Let us endeavor to live each day as though we knew it were our last. And it came to pass, that is, the predetermined counsel of Jehovah was now actualized. The fulfillment of the divine purpose can neither be retarded nor forced by us. God will not be hurried either by our petulance or our prayers. We have to wait his appointed hour, and when it strikes, he acts. It comes to pass, just as he foreordained. The precise length of time his servant is to remain in a certain place was was predestined by him from all eternity. It came to pass after many days, that is, over a thousand since the drought had commenced, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God had not forgotten his servant. The Lord never forgets any of his people, for has he not said, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Isaiah 49.16 O that we might never forget him, but set the Lord always before us. Psalm 16.8 The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. 1 Kings 18.1 So that we may better understand the tremendous test of the prophet's courage which this command involved, let us seek to obtain some idea of what now must have been the state of that wicked king's mind. We commence this study of the life of Elijah by pondering the words, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years but according to my word. 17.1 Now we are to consider the sequel to this. We have seen how it fared with Elijah during the lengthy interval. We must now ascertain how things are going with Ahab, his court, and his subjects. Dreadful indeed must be the state of things on the earth when the heavens are shut up and no moisture is given for three years. There was a sore famine in Samaria. 18.1 And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive that we lose not all the beasts. Verse 5 The barest possible outline is here presented but it is not difficult to fill in the details. Israel had sinned grievously against the Lord and so they were made to feel the weight of the rod of his righteous anger. What a humbling picture of God's favored people to behold their king going forth to seek grass if perchance he could find a little somewhere so that the lives of those beasts which remain might be saved. What a contrast with the abundance and glory of Solomon's day. But Jehovah had been grossly dishonored. His truth had been rejected. The vile Jezebel had defiled the land by the destructive influence of her false prophets and priests. The altars of Baal had supplanted that of the Lord, and therefore, as Israel had sown the wind, They must now be made to reap the whirlwind. And what effect had the severe judgment of heaven produced upon Ahab and his subjects? And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. There is not a single syllable here about God not a word about the awful sins which had called down his displeasure upon the land. Fountains and brooks and grass were all that occupied Ahab's thoughts. Relief from the divine affliction was all he cared about. It is ever thus with the reprobate. It was so with Pharaoh. As each fresh plague descended upon Egypt, he sent for Moses and begged him to pray for its removal. And as soon as it was removed, he hardened his heart, and continue to defy the Most High. Unless God is pleased to sanctify directly to our souls his chastisements, they profit us not. No matter how severe his judgments, or how long they may be protracted, man is never softened thereby, unless God performs a work of grace within him. And they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blaspheme the God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Revelation 16 verses 10 and 11 Nowhere is the awful depravity of human nature more grievously displayed than at this very point. First, men look upon a prolonged dry season as a freak of nature which must be endured, refusing to see the hand of God in it. Later, if it be borne in upon them that they are under a divine judgment, they assume a spirit of defiance and brazen things out. A later prophet in Israel complained of the people in his day for manifesting this vile temper. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. Jeremiah 5.3 From this we may see how utterly absurd and erroneous are the teachings of Romanists on purgatory and of universalists on hell. The imagined fire of purgatory or the real torments of hell possess no purifying effect, and the sinner under the anguish of his sufferings will continually increase in wickedness and accumulate wrath to all eternity. Thomas Scott. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive that we lose not all the beasts so they divided the land between them to pass throughout it Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself verses 5 and 6 what a picture do these words present not only had the Lord no place in his thoughts but Ahab says nothing about his people who next to God should have been his chief concern His evil heart seemed incapable of rising higher than horses and mules. Such was what concerned him in the day of Israel's dire calamity. What a contrast between the low groveling selfishness of this wretch and the noble spirit of the man after God's own heart. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Second Samuel twenty four seventeen. That was the language of a regenerate king when his land was trembling beneath God's chastening rod because of his sin. As the drought continued and the distressing effects thereof became more and more acute, we can imagine the bitter resentment and hot indignation borne by Ahab and his vile consort against the one who had pronounced the terrible indictment of no dew nor rain. So incensed was Jezebel that she had cut off or slain the prophets of the Lord. Verse 4 And so infuriated was the king that he had sought diligently for Elijah in all the surrounding nations, requiring an oath from their rulers that they were not providing asylum for the man whom he regarded as his worst enemy and cause of all his trouble. And now the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab. If much boldness had been required when he was called upon to announce the awful drought, what intrepidation was needed for him now to face the one who sought him with merciless rage? It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself to Ahab. The movements of Elijah were all ordered of God. He was not his own, but the servant of another. When the Lord bade him, Hide thyself, 17.3, he must retire at his orders. And when he said, Go show thyself, he must comply with the divine will. Elijah's courage did not fail him, for the righteous are bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. He declined not the present commission, but went forth without murmur or delay. Humanly speaking, it was highly dangerous for the prophet to return unto Samaria, for he could not expect any welcome from the people who were in such sore straits, nor any mercy from the king. But with the same unhesitating obedience, as had previously characterized him, so now he complied with his master's orders. Like the apostle Paul, he counted not his life dear unto himself, but was ready to be tortured and slain if that was the Lord's will for him. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. Verse 7. A few extremists, separatists, have grossly traduced the character of Obadiah, denouncing him as an unfaithful compromiser, as one who sought to serve two masters. But the Holy Spirit has not stated he did wrong in remaining in Ahab's employ nor intimated that his spiritual life suffered in consequence. Instead, he has expressly told us that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, (verse 3), which is one of the highest compliments which could be paid him. God has often given his people favor in the sight of heathen masters, as Joseph and Daniel, and has magnified the sufficiency of his grace by preserving their souls in the midst of the most unpromising environments. His saints are found in very unlikely places, as in Caesar's household. Philippians 4.22 There is nothing wrong in a child of God holding a position of influence if he can do so without the sacrifice of principle. And indeed, it may enable him to render valuable service to the cause of God. Where would Luther and the Reformation have been, humanly speaking, had it not been for the elector of Saxony, And what would have been the fate of our own Wycliffe if John of Gaunt had not constituted him his ward? As the governor of Ahab's household, Obadiah was undoubtedly in a most difficult and dangerous position, yet so far from bowing his knee to Baal, he was instrumental in saving the lives of many of God's servants. Though surrounded by so many temptations, he preserved his integrity. It is also to be carefully noted that when Elijah met him, he uttered no word of reproach unto Obadiah. Let us not be too hasty in changing our situation, for the devil can assail us in one place just as easily as in another. As Elijah was on his way to confront Ahab, he met the pious governor of the king's household. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he knew him and fell on his face and said, Art thou that, my lord Elijah? Verse 7. Obadiah recognized Elijah, yet he could scarcely believe his eyes. It was remarkable that the prophet had survived the merciless onslaught of Jezebel on the servants of Jehovah. It was still more incredible to see him here alone, journeying into Samaria. Most diligent search had long been made for him, but in vain, and now he comes unexpectedly upon him. Who can conceive the mixed feelings of awe and delight As Obadiah gazed upon the man of God, by whose word the awful drought and sore famine had almost completely desolated the land, Obadiah at once showed the greatest respect for him and did obeyance to him. As he had shown the tenderness of a father to the sons of the prophets, so he showed the reverence of a son to the father of the prophets. And by this made it appear he did indeed fear the Lord greatly. Matthew Henry And he answered him, I am, go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, verse 8. The prophet's courage did not fail him. He had received orders from God to show himself unto Ahab, and therefore he made no attempt to conceal his identity when interrogated by the governor. Let us shrink not boldly to declare our Christian discipleship when challenged by those who meet us, It is also to be duly noted that Elijah honored Ahab, wicked though he was, by speaking of him to Obadiah as thy lord. It is the duty of inferiors to show respect to their superiors, of subjects concerning their sovereign, of servants concerning their master. We must render to all that to which their office or station entitles them. It is no mark of spirituality to be vulgar in our conduct, or sharp in our speech god commands us to honor the king 1 peter 2:17 because of his office even if he be an ahab or a nero
1: this reformation audio track is a production of stillwaters revival books swrb makes thousands of classic reformation resources available free and for sale in audio video and printed formats